Um, but we'll then put they it in just the show were, notes. <laughs> put it in the show notes. Great. Um, Hello and welcome to Entertaining the Idea, Season 3, Episode Number 5. This is the podcast where we discuss the creative process from the perspectives of both generating and consuming content. I am one half of your co-hosting duo. I'm also joined by my other half, my better half. <laughs> Hi, I'm Anthony Hudex. I can't believe I'm your better half. <laughs> Threw you off there a little bit, keeping you on your toes there, Tony. Yeah. All right, Hudster, what's up? What's up, Hoodster? Hoodster, how you doing, man? Good, good. Things are good. It's uh, you know, it's summer is arriving in Los Angeles, and it is starting to get warm in our house. So. Yes, it's a good feeling, but also a sweaty feeling. Luckily, I don't know about you. I got central air now that I live in the valley, so that helps a lot. No, we don't. We live in an ancient house that's uh, roughly falling apart, and we have through hook and through hook and crook have uh, shaped this thing into a home. We're still renting it, but we have done so much to it. Um, but we still have uh, just the wall units, but. We got new, uh, we have a porch, so we got new furniture for our porch, and then I strung up those uh, Edison lights ah, nice. outside, so now the whole, like, it, it, when you put good furniture on a porch and put nice lighting out there, you all of a sudden have an extra room of your house, and it was like, as soon as we did that, it was like almost every night we were just out there, like, let's hang out, let's have a drink out on the porch, let's sit out on the porch and talk. The only thing that sucks now is uh, I feel like there's more mosquitoes this year or maybe we're just outside more because sitting out there, we're just getting eaten. So it's always nice to get a, another uh, update, another area of your home, even if it's the outside part of it. But uh, oh, I'm sure best. I feel like by the end of the time you're renting, you'll pretty much have done a full renovation of your house. Oh, so much so. So it's an old house. It was built in 1905 and we have this giant window and... Uh, my daughter was doing the school from home and she actually was just pushed her finger right into the wood that surrounded the window and it just like squished in. So they had to come and replace the whole thing. It had just been like water damage, rotting for like, well, God I mean, knows how many years. Geez, I didn't know your house was that old. I mean, yeah, you're over a century old. You're almost coming up on the uh, century and a quarter mark here. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like, yeah, maybe at one twenty-five we should throw a throw a party. <laughs> throw a party. Yeah, at one twenty. <laughs> hopefully, we won't be here for one twenty-five. But that's an old, old house. Oh, it's it's ancient. We believe we have a ghost named Amy. Shout out to Amy, a very benevolent spirit that lives in our house and is watching over us. Well, I hope she's uh, the friendly kind. She's super friendly. The only thing we can attribute to Amy is that she, we believe, Amy stole my daughter's. Uh, betta fish. Yes, I remember. Oh, that's right. We talked about this last season. The uh, mysterious uh, yeah. case of the missing betta fish. That's right. So still hasn't shown up, huh? Still hasn't shown up. But we didn't know that Amy was our ghost until the former owner stopped by and told us that they believed that there was a ghost in the house named Amy, and that Amy was a kid, and that was because when they were going to rent the house they were looking at it to rent and they went up and they looked in the attic space which is you need a ladder and you have to just like look up into it 
um, there was a tea set set up on the far end, like the attic spans the length of the house. There was a tea set set up on the on the far side, so you could see it, but they weren't gonna mess with it because you have to get up and there's no floor. You have to walk on like the the roofing joists and everything. They rented the house and then they were moving their stuff in and then there's a little bit of storage up there. So they're putting stuff up there to store and the tea set was gone. And like, oh, you know, the owners must have taken it, you know, whatever. Didn't even like clock it as a thing. That Christmas, the woman was who was living here was storing some of the old Christmas stuff up there and the tea set was back. Dude, and that is friggin' creepy. I don't know how you guys are still living there. I would be like Because oh. Amy is a benevolent ghost and she enjoys us, we believe. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, Amy. Um, but we we think she likes us. She thinks she likes everybody that's here. And the only thing that has been super mysterious is the disappearance of the fish. And I believe that Amy took the fish and I think that she is happy with her fish and I haven't gone up to the attic. So she's either playing a prank or she needed a new guest at her tea party. Uh, yeah. And so she invited the beta fish. I remember I thought we were talking about, we thought maybe it was like time traveling or went into yep. some kind of time warp before, but no, maybe it's just Amy, the friendly ghost needed a new uh, guest at her tea party. Yeah. Amy right. well, took the fish. There it is. Uh, I guess that seems like a more reasonable explanation, but, uh, Okay, well, uh, hello, Amy. You know, the, not all endings are great, and that'll that'll come up when we go I into the what you're watching a, section. But like, that is an ending. That to is that an ending. Story. We, we've we finished the story. We've wrapped up the case of the missing beta fish. So well done. I think Mayor of Easttown would be happy. <laughs> I feel very Mayor of Easttown for not going up to my attic anymore. <laughs> I still haven't watched it yet. That's uh, we we finished the Fargo, so now we're that'll be the next one when we sit down probably this weekend. So I'm excited. Oh, dude, then you're not even you didn't even realize how funny that joke you made was. You are gonna by the end of that series, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, I just crushed that joke out of nowhere. <laughs> so good. That was like that's like one of those blind shots in basketball where you just like throw it up over your head from half court and it like goes through. And you, and you just kind of keep walking out like, even yeah. like you know you're going to make it even though you're in your brain. You're like, I'm never going to make that, but I'm just going to pretend I did. And then you actually do. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait till you watch Mayor of Easttown. Yeah, I'm looking oh, forward to it. It's going to be great. And you're going to love it. You're going right. to you're going to look back and you'll be like, holy shit, I really nailed that. All right. All right. Nice. All right. I'll, I'll have to make sure I cue this up for a uh, uh, follow up. Moving on, let's get into our opening question of the day. What kind of hobbies do you have or do you have any kind of like personal activities that you kind of do on a, you know, semi-regular basis that kind of is different from anything else that you do in the sense of your creative work, your day job work or anything else that kind of allows you to zone out or feel good or decompress or de-stress, however you want to say it? I would have to say I very much view stand-up as a hobby because I don't have any illusions that like I'm going to be like selling out arenas or anything like that but I do like doing it um and I'm very excited to get back to it now that venues are opening up um although the thing that I do that I think is more in the vein of what you're talking about is I love learning things so uh what I'm doing right now is I'm learning piano um and I've been doing this for um just about you know like six months maybe like seven months and it's just been 
like I really enjoy it. I enjoy sitting down at the piano. I'm still in the like learning the fingering and stuff and getting the everything down. Like I'm I've learned all the chords and stuff with like my right hand, which is like your soloing hand, like your treble hand, I guess. Okay. Um, that's gonna handle all your high notes and then your left hand is generally your bass. Um, and now getting into songs that are like I got to play the chords with my left hand. So it's this sort of like reversing your brain. Um, and I'm just using like simply piano to learn. I was getting to the point where I was just like yelling at different artists. Like there's a section of Sorry by Justin Bieber that was okay. really hard for me to play. And I was like, <laughs> you know, just like yelling at Justin Bieber. Even though I don't even think Justin Bieber wrote the song, but I'm still just yelling at him. Probably not. At least he didn't run the accompaniment to the the lyrics of the song. And the same thing with Adele. Yeah, there was Adele too. Uh, Yeah, I think you actually brought this up on a recent episode where you said you were yelling at it because you were getting frustrated at how they lay it out or something. It might have been Lady Gaga or something. Yeah, I mean, I was yelling about that because I was like, I was having the most difficult time switching between C, G, and F, which is like, not to get into like music theory, that's like 99.9% of like your, your, it's not, that's way too high, but it's like, it's like a good 80% of your rock songs are going to incorporate C, G, and F. Okay. And you have like A minor and stuff like that in there. But that's like going from C to F it took me so long to like figure that, get that movement smooth. And now I have to do it with my left hand. So like, of course the, the first ones that I'm learning are all C F G C F G C F G A G. And then I'm like playing the melody with my right hand. And this is just where everything is starting to like crunch my brain. So is it playing a keyboard or playing the piano? Is it kind of like, typing on a computer keyboard where you have to learn where the keys are. Like if you want to be a good typist, like you have to actually be able to just look at the screen and know where your hands are going and kind of have that memorized in the feel down of the keys. Is it kind of a lot like that? Is that a hard part of it? Oh, a hundred percent. I think that's the thing with any instrument. Like I also, you know, roughly play guitar and I roughly, and I, I play bass, but, um, once you know where those keys are without looking at it, then all of a sudden you're just, listening to the sound that your you know instrument is making and then you can just go to the next thing because you know what that sound is going to be like right right yeah and now i know what the sound is i just can't get my hands there fast enough and i'm also i am playing on a keyboard i'm not using a full piano so i'm not i don't have any pedals so like when you're doing something where you're going to hit a whole note generally you can hit the whole note and then have the pedal and then get ready for your next note you know, as it's like just sustaining. Well, I can't do that. I have to hold something. So like my whole notes are like, instead of four beats, I'm like three and five eighths of a beat. And then I have to like quick jump over to my next one. And then I have to quick jump over, which is a good way for me to learn. Or I could just like, you know, spend the money to get like an electronic pedal, but I don't want to. So I'm just like, this is how I'm going to learn. So I have to keep switching fairly quickly, which will help. So how long, how long are you going to stick with this? Is this an indefinite one or is it one of these things that you actually will stick with or will it at some point maybe just fade or do you say, ah, I'm good now and 
You know what's weird? I always wanted to learn how to play piano. There's two instruments I always wanted to learn how to play. I always wanted to learn how to play drums because that was the first instrument I wanted to play, and my parents said absolutely not. If they're wise parents, wise, wise parents. Not that playing piano, drums are bad. It's just that uh, they're wise as far as their own sanity goes. No, see, this is the thing. And I, this is a little tip for all you parents out there. Oh, all right. I could always use a parenting tip. You think that because it's loud inherently with the drums that you're going to be annoyed by them. Here's the thing. When you learn drums at first, you get this little rubber pad and the sticks. So you can't really hear what the what they're doing until they figure out the rhythm. And then when you figure out the rhythm, then like you move on to like the snare drum or whatever and then you move into whatever drums you're going to use or a drum kit or however, and it's loud. When you're learning I learned saxophone when you're learning saxophone, there is no little rubber pad that you're learning your rhythms on. You're slaughtering a goose every time <laughs> you put that thing to your face until you actually learn how to make the reed sound okay. And then you have to, while making the reed sound okay, you also have to get your fingering down. So it still sounds terrible and it sounds terrible and you can't modulate anything because you don't know how to control the instrument. And it takes so much breath to make a woodwind or brass instrument go. So it's loud. It's, it literally sounded like I was murdering geese. It's so much better to just have your kid learn the drums because all that terrible practicing stuff, that's all going to be on a rubber pad. Where he's like, bop it da 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 bop And then, yes, it will get loud. But in the beginning, so much more sanity and then you have time to kind of like see if the kids can even follow through fair enough spoken like a, a true drummer enthusiast i guess but i remember in grade school when they brought in the music program and like oh you can learn all these you know instruments saxophone trumpet you know we have a multiple a bunch of them that you can learn you can pick and you got to try out a few and yeah i tried them and none of them none of that spoke to me i, I i'm not a music guy at heart uh, I enjoy listening to music. I don't enjoy making music. I, it's one of those things where I think about like our medium where we're writing and stuff. And you, when you're doing it and you really start trying to focus and hone your skill and you're like, but yeah, but you wonder like, can anybody do this? Like, is this special? And then you realize, yes, like what you're doing, if you stick with it and you start learning what is good writing and learn how to tone those skills. But like, then I look at other creative mediums like acting or, you know, music and how none of that, like writing makes sense to me. None of that makes sense to me. Like music, I just, it doesn't, doesn't, like I get that there's a whole proper way to do it and I could learn like how to read music and you know, essentially write music, but I don't feel like it because it doesn't just easily understood to me. So it, it's just sure. like, I think that, you know what, that's where you like leave it to people who are that just, they understand it. Like they see it in a certain way. And that sometimes goes back to what we talked about before when you get itches to do different things that it's okay to scratch those itches because like if you actually are passionate about it and, and it maybe just makes sense to you that's a good thing then you should try to like nurture that a little bit where there's other things that you'll you'll start to learn that no that that just isn't in my wheelhouse like I can't understand that like it's and it's not worth the effort to even try to because it's like let other people who that does come naturally to let them do it and just enjoy it then and that's what I mean by that though it's good that you're kind of you know scratching that itch and actually you know following through with it because I know 
music, you do have sort of an inclination to the to music, even though it isn't necessarily your front of mind creative skill set. It's still something that you get a certain kind of uh, joy out of. Yeah, I do like doing it. Um, there's always this like little thing in my the back of my head, and I think this is why I keep trying different things and doing different things, is that I have this like feeling that there'll be like one thing that I'll pick up and I'm like the prodigy of. I'm not a prodigy in anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not like yet. I'm, just, I'm not. But like, I figure if I try enough different skills, there's going to be like this one thing that they're like, holy crap, you know how to weave. Like you, there's just something in you, man. You are a born <laughs> weaver. Born weaver. So a buddy of mine, just out of a random, like going on vacation with his wife, picked up pottery. Like, they were just like, you know, they're at a couple's retreat. They're like, do pottery. People just came over to him like, oh, my gosh, you're really good at this. Like, what are you like? Uh, do you have a pottery studio somewhere? Whatever. Like, he just naturally right. took to it. And there's like, and now he's like not pursuing it professionally. Like, he has another job. But like, he's, you know, taking classes and doing because he's found that thing that like he instantly started doing it. And people like immediately recognized that he had something and i yeah. think that's i have a, a weird feeling that everybody's a prodigy at something you just may never run across that thing in your life that you're a prodigy of like i might be like a sculpting prodigy i've just never tried to sculpt anything in my life yeah i i agree i i, I love that philosophy so just keep trying everything and at least at least do it once and see where, where it leads you never know right and also quit it quit as soon as it doesn't come easy to you as soon as it doesn't come, you just quit. <laughs> yeah, I think it helps you turn your brain off from what you think about and focus on a new thing. How about you? What do you do as your like hobby? Forget about the world for a little bit. Uh, my biggest thing I'd say is kind of working out. And the main part of that is running. Running has kind of always been the main one out of it, though, that I enjoy probably the most, uh, even though at times it's hard. But Anytime I get to just go out and run, that's kind of like my happy place. Uh, usually I plug into a podcast and then I just go. So I've always enjoyed kind of talk radio. Like we talked about the sports uh, before the we started and I used to listen to a lot of sports talk radio. I don't anymore, but I picked up podcasts since they've been a thing, you know, over the past like uh, 10 years or so. And it's just fun to be able to have a few and just usually there's always a new one ready to go when I'm out for a run and I can just load it up and just kind of take off and just little kind of zone out and whatever the conversation is. And I, I just love that kind of stuff. And, but then I'm all into stats and metrics and, and tracking my runs and how far I'm going, what my pace is, what my cadence is and uh, you know, what my heart rate is and just looking at all that kind of stuff. Not that I necessarily do too much with it, but I kind of look at it in a smaller sample set and just kind of see where I'm kind of going. I, I enjoy yeah. all that part of it, like really kind of getting into the weeds of it uh, and learning new techniques. Uh, I, I just enjoy it. it. It kind of is like a fun hobby and it's like the same thing. I don't have to, I'm not going to make a career out of any of that stuff. It's not going to be anything that it's going to, you know, be a side hustle. It's just something that I can do focus on. It's in the best part of it. It's my body. I can control it. I think that's yeah. why I enjoy it. Cause it's out of anything else that's going crazy on in life. You can, I, I specifically can control me and my body. So that's part of what I enjoy about kind of working out overall. I got one question and I don't mean to turn this into a running podcast, but this is legitimately a question I had. Cause I do, uh, I do run fairly often, 
but I have a fairly slow play, pace. I'm about a 10, 30 mile, like 10, 10, 30 is about my mile range. How do you increase your pace when you're running? Like there's a part of me that's just like, you, do you just run faster? Like there, there feels like there has to be like, like with weightlifting, it's like if you want to increase, you do stuff. You do like strip sets where you do a couple at a higher rep, but then as soon as you can't do that anymore, you drop down to a lower weight and then you continue. Yeah. You know, and or if you're doing pull ups, you do the negatives after you've done whatever. So you're continuing to get stronger it, with, by putting less stress on your body. So how do you do that for running? I mean, I, I, I'm sure that you could, there's a thousand, uh, I mean, how do you do it for running? How do I do it? Generally, I just continually do increase my pace. So I will try to run faster. And it's kind of like, almost like you were saying when you're stacking it with weightlifting, where like your first reps, you're going to do at a high weight and then you'll successively go down in weight, maybe each rep or vice versa. You'll start out lower than each, each rep or each set. I'm sorry. You'll increase in weights. I would say like a good way for me, I probably do it is that I continue to try to push that pace earlier on when I have the energy. Um, but the thing is, and then by into that, whatever that set distance I'm going to go, um, you know, I'm pretty spent, but that that's usually how I, I kind of will push it earlier on. And then I'll fall back a little bit in the later parts of it. Um, cause, but the, the thing about it is though, I find that no matter what you're going to hurt, it's going to hurt to do, but that's part of it. You'll, you have to kind of push to that hurt peak, that point where you can, you can do it, but it hurts a lot. And then at a certain point, you're just going to like, I have to pull back. Um, <laughs> but it's that repetition of doing that though. So if you're, what are you at a 10, what, what are you at a pace roughly? Uh, like I'm between a 10 and a 1030 mile. Like most of my miles are going to be in like, so try to in, do in that range. And that, yeah. So then try to do like your, maybe your first or your first half mile at like a nine, nine thirty clip. Okay. And then, and then fall back into what feels a little bit more easier into your, your 10, your 10 to 10 30, uh, range okay. with that. You, you have to go above what your normal, uh, high output is in, in order to, to keep jumping up. Now you just don't go, you're, you're not going to go for your full, you know, two mile, three mile run at that pace. You just want to do it for short bursts. Um, another method of running is called a Feralect where you do, you pretty much just burst running where you'll run at, um, for like, you'll start out your, at a slower pace and then for like 30 seconds, you'll run at maybe like, or at maybe for like a minute, you'll run at about maybe like 60% of what your max is. And then at, uh, then you'll come back down for like two minutes and you'll run at a, uh, like maybe a 40% pace or something like that. And then for the yeah. next, uh, 30 seconds, you'll run at 80% and then you come back down for two minutes and then you go back at for like 20 seconds at like near 90% and then you come back down. And that's also a way I think that is you try to train your body to hit a higher peak, uh, in a more regimented way. That makes way. sense. Okay. So, so I would look up Feralek runs or just, just the general idea of 
push yourself for a set distance uh, at a higher speed than what you typically would do. And you're going to hurt doing that. That's, that's the biggest thing is you have to live in the hurt. Uh, and then you'll, you'll get faster that way though, because that's, that's pretty much the only way to do it though, is just like weightlifting. You have to do the heavier weight in order to be able to get bigger and stronger. And that's really the biggest key is you just have to actually push it above what you you feel like your peak is and hit that, that max level uh, for a set time. And then, uh, but after a while, that'll start to become normal. Huh. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's what I got. So that, that's my main hobby and uh, enjoyment outside of anything else that I do that has nothing to do with it. Uh, it's great. I, I love it. It really is my de-stressor. It's what keeps me calm and keeps me level-headed uh, most of the times. Yeah. That was a fun digression into what we do outside of all this craziness we call creativity. So, all right, Tony, then let's move on to what we've been watching recently since the last time we spoke. So what do you got on the docket? I, okay, so I did talk about this before. So I, I finished up Bloodline. Yes. And that was, uh, uh, when I was talking about it before, I was raving about Ben Mendelsohn and, you know, Kyle Chandler and Linda yes, Cardellini yes. and what an amazing cast that they had and Sissy Spacek and, you know, it was, you know, great. Wow, that is quite the cast. No, the, the cast is great. And then um, what's his face? The playwright actor, Sam Shepard was um in the first season i forgot to mention him last time and he's you know always great yeah so the first season was amazing i mean like literally like amazing i I loved it um the way they started was they started uh, the first scenes or stuff that happens at the end of the first season and then you're kind of working to see how it ends up them getting there so i liked the structure it was very cool and then the second and third season happened. And I have never seen a show that started off so well go so downhill oh, no. so quickly. And it became, by the time I got into the third season of it, I was pretty much done with the show. Like, I was like, I don't really want to watch the third that's, season. That's the worst. And a buddy of mine was like, no, 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 you have, like, you're in it now. Like, you have one more season to go. You can do this. I believe in you. You got to finish. And I, I, I feel okay, kind of, I mean, you can throw the spoiler alert thing in here. This ended in 2017, so this is almost five years old at this point. But spoiler alert, because I am going to talk about the second to last episode, which I recommend that nobody watch. So you have all these different plot lines going on, roughly, to just give a synopsis, it's about a family in the Florida Keys. There's a, a death in the family, and that triggers all of these events, and how their life just sort of spins out of control from that. By the time you get to the ninth, or the third, the third season, you're in the ninth episode, and there's all these questions that are hanging over their head. One of the characters is running drugs to Cuba. One of them is has disappeared to LA. Another character is trying to like keep the the fetter the feds from another character. And it's all this stuff that's happening. And what they decide to do for this penultimate episode of this series is they do a weird 
like alternate world where one character lives a day kind of over and over again like a almost like a groundhog day type of thing okay so they're answering questions but then it's resetting and what's happened and i had to even look it up to, to truly understand what was happening is that <laughs> that's never a good sign uh, no it's not a good sign and everybody and the thing was reading the reviews about this guy and i didn't watch it reading like the entertainment weekly synopsis of it and they're like we don't even know what's going on at this point like, was this all a dream? It, what was happening is that a character had had a diving accident and was having had uh, brain damage from being underwater until they were rescued. Right. But it's not really clear because everything else in the episode is resetting. So you don't know what parts are real and what aren't. So any questions that are getting answered aren't really getting answered. Because they're just getting reset. So it's just like the emotion of what's happening. And it's, it was the, like, if that had been, like, in the middle of, like, so, the third season, you'd be, like, fine. For the second to last episode, where you're just trying to wrap everything up, for them to just burn it on Groundhog Day, the murder investigation. So this was, like, a bottle episode using Groundhog Day structure and then it has really no meaning to the entire series emotionally it had meaning because of but like no so wait, are, are they, so is it basically though they have a whole different you have like a handful of ways you could handle this and they use this story told to be able to like parse out oh let's this is what happens if we went this way or if it went that way or it went yes. this way and so you're like, oh, we couldn't make a choice about which way we wanted to go. We wanted to give you, and they try to do this emotional resonance between all of these different ideas. Right. And I think the, I think the idea that they were trying to get at is that no matter what this character would have chosen, no matter what path they would have gone along, no matter where they would have been, things were going to end up the way they were going to end up and they didn't have the control over it that they thought they did. I think that was the point they were trying to make in the in the episode. Which is thematically fair. to to do yeah. that. Which is a fair point to make. Not for your second to last episode. Because then when you get to the last episode and all these questions still aren't answered, now they actually have to spend time being like, okay, well this was what was actually kind of real. And then they they have to kind of like orient you again to where you are in the world. And then they have one episode to answer all these questions. So all these questions don't get answered. And like some of them just get wrapped out with like almost when shows do a, a, like a faux poignancy. You know what I mean? Like where they're like, oh, this is supposed to mean something. And there's like long shots and the scene takes a while. Yeah. And then you're like... But this isn't what that character would do. Like, there's a character that ends up committing suicide in the back of a car where he's being taken by two individuals. And it's like this guy, this character, would have shot both of them rather than taking his own life. Like There was no reason for him to take his own life. He had a gun and the drop on two guys. And he decided to take his own life. as if, And it was just like... I don't like so much time was with I was so infuriated that I invested so much time in a series 
only to to be that dismissed. Well, what was your buddy's? Why would he recommend you even watch season three and continue to waste your time like that? Because he's he, his point was that it's such a spectacular burning the house down <laughs> that you can't not see it. Like you, you. That's fair. I would never be able to understand how they burnt the legacy of the first season to a complete and utter pile of ash unless I watched the last season. And then you would know. You would know why people were recommending Bloodline when it first came out. And then by the time it was over, nobody was recommending it. It's like Game of Thrones. Like You would tell somebody when you're watching Game of Thrones, you have to watch the eighth season. Like... And then people, like, and you know it's terrible. You know it's a dumpster fire. You know it's going to, like, ruin the entire story. All right. All right. I will, I will, well, let's, let's, let, I'll put the pump the brakes on that a little bit. It's not a dumpster fire, please. <laughs> it took some wrong turns. That's fine. But it's not a dumpster fire. There's still some impressive uh, storytelling going on and, and cinematic experience in that There's final season. There's some impressive cinematic experience going on. I mean, uh, Storytelling wise, I will have to have that debate another time. Maybe we'll, maybe we well, should do a debate episode where we just like set it up like Harvard debate style and like go point by point because I disagree. Like that last season seems so rushed just to get the, the it over with. All right. Well, I'm writing that idea down because All we right. can definitely. I I gotta I gotta cut this off because I know that we can go down a rabbit hole real quickly yes. on this one. So yeah, I yeah. do like this though a Harvard style debate on the merits of the greatness of Got season eight. There, you go. there it is. I, I like that idea because maybe do a whole episode of debates because there's there's other things that we we don't see eye to eye on being Superman yeah. is a great superhero so maybe we can add that in or maybe it'll be an ongoing series of our debate episodes so we'll see we'll we'll, we'll see what we can come up with and uh, for future episodes but anyway okay. back to Bloodline uh, yeah that's disappointing I see. Here's the thing, at least, at least it was only three seasons. So that's a good thing. Usually these kind of shows for me, they're at least five or six seasons in. And it's this debate of like the completionist in you. At least I, I always have that in me to like, I've started it. I should finish it. That's what happened yeah. with Breaking Bad for me because I was like, well, I'm already in it. I might as well finish it, even though I didn't really want to. And my wife is going to finish it anyway. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. Yeah, put teeth. that on the debate list because I'll okay. debate you on I'll debate you on Breaking cool. Bad too. Oh, that, I'll I'll do that one for sure. I, I I'm happy to debate that. I see that reminds me of another show that I felt the same way was uh, Rescue Me, where like the first four seasons were fantastic, and then all of yeah. a sudden, like season five, it jumps the shark, so to speak, as they say, and. All of a sudden, it was just like, what am I watching? Why am I watching this? Like, is this isn't the same show that I started watching four years ago? It's it just it just goes off the rails because they they a lot of these shows do run out of um, uh, runway, and it seems like maybe the networks just it's one of their biggest shows, so they keep paying them to make it, even though there's they not much more to mine. I know a lot of uh, Showtime shows this happens to. Uh, won't name anything specifically. No, and I think <laughs> but, after, like, when you, I mean, when you get into, like, a season five or stuff like that, you may have 
people who are also kind of creatively a little burnt out, especially if you've told arcs of stories and then you're looking for a creative challenge. So you're going to, cause I, I, I did, you know, watch rescue me and you're right. The first four seasons were exceptional. And then the, it does kind of take a turn. Um, and I think that there are these swings to try and do something like different or explore a character in a different way. And when it doesn't work out, like the reason I remember this show, uh, rescue me is because I love the show so much, but then it's almost similar to this penultimate episode. I remember in rescue me and I think it was season five or season six, they randomly had a musical episode, not even necessarily a full episode, but in one of the middle of an episodes, they just break out into a musical score, uh, song and dance. And you're like, okay, what's going on here? And then you figure, all right, I'll just go with it. They're doing something because it had something to do with somebody who was on cancer or maybe they were dreaming or something. I feel like that's kind of what you're just talking about where they're trying to do something different and explore something and just try, try something, which I, 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 I appreciate. And I, I understand the effort, like a for effort, but when it doesn't hit it, it just really, it's not great. Um, and it really can, it can kind of burn a show. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because, you know, it, you know, kind of like we were talking about before with like, uh, sports, I guess we were talking about that before the show. Nobody wants to make a bad show and you need to have the ability to take those swings, which is why Mm -hmm. I was, I feel bad talking bad about, um, like bloodline because I know like none of the creators or none of the actors or none of the crew people, nobody wants to make a bad show and you're taking a swing. The problem is I think when you take swings at the wrong time, like when you have, you know, use a sports metaphor when it's first and goal and you're on the one, you decide to take a deep shotgun and try and throw to the back of the end zone for four straight plays. It's like, I appreciate the chutzpah of doing something like that, but you gotta, you gotta just punch it home. Yeah. It's where you're going to have to use everything that's been set up before all the strength of your linemen to just put it on their shoulders, push it that last way. And I think that's kind of where I feel like some things like it, it deserves to be pointed out as this was not good, but I don't like, you know, I always feel bad, like ridiculing stuff like that. Cause again, Nobody wants to make something bad. I don't think you're ridiculing. You're pointing out what was some flaws in the show. I mean, that's what on the show, we try to be as positive as possible. And we don't, we generally stay away from being negative. And when we do though, we just try to give, you know, constructive criticism here as far as it didn't work. So they tried something and it just didn't work. And I think part of it too, that sounds like somewhat of a, especially because they maybe went the Groundhog Day thing. It's a little bit of a trope as well. Like it wasn't even something new or different that they tried necessarily like using the groundhog day thing to try to explain away things isn't always the best no. the best tool to use like there's a lot of tools that possible ways they could have tried something different that didn't fit the typical structure of the show uh but again you know they they gave someone a shot and obviously they were trying for something sometimes things sound good in in the head or even if you talk about it but then the execution doesn't quite hit where you envisioned it that's why the creative medium is always difficult because there's so many ways uh that something can go an idea can go wrong oh, yeah. Oh, yeah all right bloodline uh maybe check out the first season if you want to i would i'd recommend everybody watch the first season um after that you know just 
just honestly go to the Wikipedia page and read how it ends. Like you don't really need to invest another 20 hours into the show yeah. to find out how it ends. Just go to the Wikipedia page. But first season is amazing. Oh, and one more like notable person that I feel keep getting left out of the bloodline discussion is um, Jamie, Jamie McShane plays Eric O'Bannon, who is kind of like he's, he just plays a great character and he does such a great job, but he's like one of those actors that is so natural in the role that you're like, you forget that they're acting and you're like, Oh, this is probably how that guy is in real life. And like, obviously there's no way he could be this in real life, but like he just embodies it so well. So I just wanted to take a minute to point out that uh, Jamie McShane does a phenomenal job as Eric O'Bannon. That's great. I, I love when you have those kind of character performances where the casting just nailed the character and they bring something to it that wasn't even probably on the written page. They just somehow found something. Yeah. And it's good because, you know, there's so many, so many talented actors. And yeah, um, it's it's great when they they find that role that that hits and they're able to, like, really play into the strengths of it. So so I wanted to end on a positive note with Bloodline. So what was I watching this past week? So actually I had a few things um, that I've seen recently, but I'll stick with the the thing that you just did and do a follow-up of a show I just talked about recently as well that I saw season one and that is the boys. So I did just finish season two as well and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I honestly almost think it was better than the first season. I, I just really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I feel like it, part of it was, it, it was able to excel because season one is kind of like first chapter kind of aspect where it's a lot of that setup stuff was especially obviously in the first part of the season one. So there's a lot of the setup and, you know, putting these characters into each other's paths and all that, where this already was going on. And because of all of what happened in season one, it was a lot of just questions like, where are all these people? How are they still holding up? Like what's yeah. the scope of the world that's kind of around them and all that. And as you peel back all those layers and you find it out and then, you know, people start crisscrossing paths again, it's, I just really enjoyed it. And I got to say the second half of the second season, just, they really just started amping it up where I'm going, I can't believe all this is happening like right now. Cause I'm in like episode say like five out of eight and there's some crazy stuff happening. Like some of the episodes are just like nonstop action and conflict happening that just like one thing after another, they just keep ratcheting it up the level of things and issues that are happening that all the storylines just felt pretty true and great evolution of everybody. I thought so like they they just had a really nice balance. Oh, I would a hundred percent agree. Yeah. So I know you weren't quite, I know, but, but you, I remember you said you weren't quite as up on big on season two as you were season one. Yeah, I and my thing was mainly because uh, season two starts so slow uh-huh. for me, and then by the time you get into like the last part of it, I was really enjoying it. So I think when we were talking, I hadn't made it through all the way through the um, the second season. That oh, la- okay. the back half of it is really good. It really is. I mean, they just they pack so much in without feeling like they're just cramming in stuff because they have to answer questions. Like that was part of, it's almost the difference of what you were just sort of talking about where they had to answer all these questions. They were moving things along the storyline that I thought wouldn't happen until like the penultimate or the season finale. They were sticking these uh, plot points in, in like 
the you know episode four episode five but then they also nailed the landing after that it wasn't like they just decided to ratchet up earlier on and then they didn't know how to get themselves out of a box they knew where they were going they knew what they wanted to do and especially once you see the finale they really had this kind of beat it out you you could tell that they had a very good idea where they were going with all of it and they had, I think, more than knowing, because I think everybody knows where they're going. I think having enough story to fill the episodes is is one of those key moments or key things, because sometimes it feels like a lot of shows don't have enough of the story to fill what they're or they're going off on these like side quests yeah. when you don't need to. I again, I thought the season started fairly slow and I was kind of like, oh. but then by that back half where everything is going 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 you're like you know you almost get into a confusion of who's alive and who's dead for a while and you know i really i i enjoyed that part of it um and the ending i thought was good i thought they really they ended it in a good way one of my favorite parts about the show though is and i don't disagree with the probably the beginning was a little slow it was a little bit more of that build up but i i was still good with it and uh, it's funny you bring that up, though. They they do seem to go on these side adventures, but they always come back around to the plot, more or less. And at, for a little bit, I was like, okay, here we go. And, and But then they, I think they even hang a lantern on it at some point where... So I appreciate that when they sometimes do that, where they call it out and they know it. But there was always in the end of it, there they, that's the thing, though. They do on these side adventures, but then some real big shit goes down, though, that really throws everything for a loop. It's not like they just go in, have some trouble getting whatever they need to get, and then they get out, and then they can move on with the regular story. Stuff happens in the side adventures, spoiler alert, that is then all of a sudden throws everything for a loop. And that was kind of what I really enjoyed about it, where they would do these side adventures, but then stuff happens unexpectedly that you didn't see coming. And then all of a sudden, everything has to get rejiggered. So I, I really, that's what I think I enjoyed about uh, the ratcheting up and things happening that I wasn't expecting. The big thing I enjoy, though, is that all of the characters, but even especially like the bad ones, uh, they... They have layers to them, and I've, I always talk about this. The more layers, especially bad guys have, the more I enjoy the show because it's not cut and dry. And even though some of the bad guys are purely bad, like in the sense that, yeah, this is the bad guy, and they have pretty in- evil intentions, even though, but then they have ways or reasons behind those those intentions, though, that there is a bit of empathy that you can have even being you know rooting for the protagonist they all have kind of double motives and stuff like that or ulterior things and that's where you get to explore things and it's not all cut and dry and so even if they're doing bad things you kind of see the the reasoning behind it like their backstory there is a a level of empathy there and i think having empathy on a certain level for villains even is an important thing to really have a a full cohesive show oh i think 100 percent. i also think that this was a show that definitely didn't shy away from they would do a technique where you essentially would imply something and then they would end up showing it later yeah. like and it would be something that would be going over the line of what you would think like we're comfortable in tv and in movies when like something gets implied and you're like okay we get it that they've really messed up they're yeah. really messed up and then then they'll show them in that like space or doing something worse than what they've already implied that they would do. Yeah. Whoa. Like there was a couple times, there was a couple of scenes with Homelander where I was like, Whoa, you really did like you, you, you set this up and this is earned. 
And this is way messed up. Well, that that's the thing about the show. When I talked about it before, like you agree that it was it's a dark show. Oh yeah, There's, for sure. And it was again completely a different tone than I was expecting going into it because I thought it was going to have more of this dark comedy aspect to it where but uh, like this dry witty sense of humor a bunch of superhero world and they're all not quite as perfect as we you know typically see superheroes as but no it's just straight up dark and some some sometimes it gets real dark and you're like whoa okay and, and i think those are kind of some of those moments you're talking about and that is almost refreshing because again superheroes there there's been sort of like you know, edgier type ones, but this one mm-hmm. is just almost straight up dark. And it's got that Watchmen vibe to it, especially, I think there's some homages to Watchmen at different points. Um, like pretty clear, like when the two are getting together and they're going around beating up yeah. stuff while also doing each other. Like that to me is just as a pure homage to Watchmen, like the scenes of Nighthawk oh, yeah. and um, Night Spectre, Owl Silk Spectre, and... Night Owl yeah, and Silk, Silk Spectre. Spectre. Like, I don't know. That's just how I read it. I could be wrong, but. No, no, no. I think, I think you're right. I think there are definite illusions. And the weird thing is one of the things that the boys captured on in this, which the movie, the Watchmen never captured, but the book did was this real power imbalance between the people that were actually like had superpowers and the people who did not. Yeah. And that there was like a real bringing a knife to a gunfight type of like feeling every time you would have people without superpowers going against people with superpowers. And then like in the Watchmen that kind of those lines got real smoothed out. And real like, oh well, they all kind of have superpowers, so whatever. And that yeah. that was what I didn't like about the movie, but that was very present in the comic book. Right, I remember you spoke about that. So, yeah, and that's what the boys I think does a lot of what Watchmen, or you know, it's in that same realm. But it, you know, I think again, it takes an even bit darker course in a different way than Watchmen did. I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I enjoyed the twist at the end that, you know, how they're going to extend it out. So that was interesting too, is because this pretty much got a lot buttoned up towards the end there. Uh, But they are also did leave a little few breadcrumbs to open up season three, which is interesting. So we'll see how it goes, but I enjoyed the first two. So I was glad I got into it. I know you recommended it before. So I'm happy I finally got into it and checked it out because not again, what I was expecting, but uh, way better than my even my expectations were. So I'm, I'm happy to have seen it and that it oh, is. Oh, good, good, good. Let's just get into the main event then. Okay. So speaking of staying positive and always looking for the upside in life, I know you had this idea for this topic and it came out of uh, Ted Lasso got uh, announced that season two is coming back, I think in July. Yeah, July 23rd, um, yes. well, the second season of Ted Lasso is going to drop on Apple+. Plus. And also because uh, Danny McBride's uh, production company just uh, signed a thing, a deal with HBO Max to bring the Garbage Pail Kids. Oh, see, I haven't seen to, that one yet. To HBO Max. So I think that I think they said it was 10 episodes, but I don't. But anyway, they signed that, so they're going to develop that for HBO Max. Well, that is some untraditional material to mine, yeah. isn't it? Right, and that's what I was like, hey, can we talk about 
normally when you when you do film or television adaptations they come from you know plays or they come from you know maybe it's a movie that's going to tv maybe it's a tv that that gets a movie made out of it um you know maybe it's a novel that gets a show or whatever right but these adaptations come from a mostly narrative point of view and then they they just are the story's told in a different medium right well I was like these non-traditional places for these like productions to originate really fascinated me. Um, and with those two being, you know, relatively recent news, I was like, we should talk about that a little bit. I thought it was a great idea when you brought it up because I, I want to have a deeper discussion on adaptations overall. Cause that's been kind of on my mind. Um, more in the scale of like ad- ad- adapting more narrative forms like you just spoke about books uh you know plays anything else that has the same structure as a tv or a film medium and but again you're you're changing mediums so you have to do certain things to get them to fit right like you can't just go word for word uh what's interesting about doing these things though uh, Ted Lasso is the first easiest example. They were, he was a, it was a promo campaign for right. NBC sports when they got the rights to like, I think the English premier league to then show on all their, whatever their channels and distribution network was. So they made up this whole character in order to, uh, you know, just drum up interest or so. So his character was basically D2 high school or D2 college football right. coach that gets hired to be the coach of a, a English premier team, football, soccer team over in England, which is, and it was just then the press conference about like, what's going on here? How does a high school or a college football coach expect to coach soccer over uh, in England where they're rabid about their teams and all that? And so that was kind of like the joke uh, of what's going on. And he had this very happy-go-lucky personality to him. Right. And the super positive, like, yeah, we'll figure it out. I'll, I'll learn this game. I'll learn. And it was a really interesting promo for them getting the Premier League because it was this very positive, like, yeah, I'm going to learn all this. This is going to be fun. And without, you know, actually having to just like, hey, come and watch the Premier League now on NBC. See what the world is talking about. It was yeah. very much like. Here's a happy-go-lucky guy who's excited about soccer, and like you can be excited about soccer, right? And it may it fits what was happening though, because if it's an American news, uh, American uh, network buying up the rights for this soccer league to show, uh, you know, to air in America, like there's going to be less interest. So they had to find a way to kind of relate to that idea of like, well, we're not very big soccer fans, but, oh, you know what? You can learn to be a soccer fan by watching these games. So it was actually pretty smart. I remember it was pretty memorable. I mean, a lot of people talked about it, so I think it did its job. At least, at least the promo itself was, was popular. Yeah. And Jason Sudeikis does such a great job with that type of character. Who's like infinitely positive, you know? Yeah. And then there, I mean, there's multiple other uh, instances of this too, that that didn't work out so well. Uh, The cavemen, I think. Uh, Yeah. I was going to say, do you want to just go, let's just go through and like bang out a couple of these so we can kind of talk about like a little bit of each one. Yeah. That that sounds good. Cause then let's, I I also do want to talk then, you know, just talk about Ted Lasso. So let's start off with Ted Lasso's then. And then he, so they did this promo and then so, 
I guess it was last year, maybe it was 2019 when Apple announced that they were going to do this Ted Lasso show based off of this NBC promo, which I think was over 10 years old or close to it at that point by the time the show actually started getting made, I think. Yeah, it might have been close to that old, yeah. It probably wasn't. It was probably like five. Everything. It's a pandemic. This wasn't in this zeitgeist of like, oh, this came out last year and this was really funny and like, oh, can we make this into something bigger? Like this was a good five, six, maybe plus years ago and kind of was funny at the time and moved on and, you know, it's not really on anybody's radar. And then all of a sudden this was the idea. So everybody, at least my thing was like, how are they going to make this into a show? Which is, I think, a common (laughs) question whenever you hear one of these brand names get brought up and all of a sudden they're going to make a a movie or TV show out of it. To their credit, the Ted Lasso people did a great job. And I think it just goes to what you said. Jason Sudeikis just has this very affable personality that fit well with this character. And I think they also wrote it. I mean, the you know, the whole writing staff, they wrote the show very well to keep the character honest and earnest. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, you can talk about the ones that are successful that do this. I think one of the big things that they have is like the idea of being able to take like the ethos of what the promo was or what the advertisement was and then translate that into the show so like yeah with ted lasso like you do have that like ethos of the like the the earnest but eager you know personality but then yeah like you were talking about with the geico cavemen the ethos of that was that they were constantly being called dumb you know, because it was so easy, a caveman could do it. So that that was like the ethos of it. But then when it turned around and they did it as a sitcom for ABC, they made it about race. Like in a very thinly veiled, like instead of it being just about intelligence and like being smart or dumb, they make it very racial. So then you get this really almost racist premise of being like these not yet evolved people and then using them as a sub for race like kind of destroyed the fun ethos of just being like oh they're not dumb and they're being treated like they're dumb yeah you know honestly i didn't even watch any of the cavemen i just remember it it was the same kind of questions like how are they going to make this into a show and then it just failed spectacularly like it just but that's, I, I think that was the big part of it, though. They they didn't inhibit what was the original good feeling from the commercials, from the ads. Like, they, they completely stripped away the fun part of it. And then, and also, I think then they were just trying to go for a lot of low-hanging fruit, though, of caveman jokes or dumb jokes, too. Like, there was, and it's like... That that's gonna wear thin pretty quickly. Like that's what you get out of the commercials because they're fifteen second spots. So you just right. make one off jokes, and yeah, okay, you get a quick laugh out of it. But then it's over. So then you you have a good feeling and you leave it. But then you have to stretch this out over twenty three minutes and how many ever episodes in a season. So though you have to find something else though besides just the main joke of what it was. And I think that's what yeah. Ted Lasso does such a great job at. They, they add a whole bunch of uh, color and backstory, but they also add other characters in that also add in the, the layers to it that he can work off of as well. So where the cavemen, I, I, I remember just, 
it was just them and then in these situations. And then like you're saying, they obviously went into some other territory that was way out of the bounds of what the original concept was. Right. It just took it. I mean, and not that race can't be discussed in comedy, but like discussing it like that was not good and then not funny. And it didn't, it didn't hit the mark because it was too, like it was, too it sounds like a little almost too on the nose with it rather than you know and it might not have been necessarily on the nose but it was pretty overt probably of like what they were implying yeah and it just came it came off it came off more racist than it came off at making commentary about racial things right well that when you're going for that kind of angle too you have to be very subtle about it but like it reads through even though you're not directly necessarily addressing it and right right it was it was pretty rough um but then i remember like just talking about other ones that were taken from ads and brought into the um you know limelight california raisins were one of my favorites as a kid and they were, you know, for the Cal, I believe they were just the raisin growers of California. And like they were, that was just their thing. And they were these Motown singing raisins. Do you remember this at all? I, I do remember the California raisins, like in the abstract. I don't remember anything necessarily specific outside of, I think it was generally like a claymation kind of yep. episodes. Yeah, they were- um, but I don't remember anything about the episodes. I just know they would do some singing and dancing. Uh, I think I did have a stuffed plush of a California raisin and they played the saxophone, I think a lot. Yep. Uh, so that's the general things I remember about it. I don't remember what the episodes were about necessarily, uh, but they were a thing and I did enjoy it as a kid. Don't know why I just did. So, but that's what I remember. I mean, it was great. I mean, they, they had the Motown catalog to play from, I believe if I'm remembering the plot of the California raisins correctly, they were musicians and they were just kind of like going around singing their, you know, songs and solving problems by singing Motown songs. Um, and they had, I remember having the California raisins records or not record, uh, cassette as a kid. Um, and we like, I wore that thing out. It's how I, I, you know, learned about the temptations and Smokey Robinson and how I really like learned about what them, like it, it really introduced me to Motown in a different way once you get into Motown music, like that library is just giant and there's so many just amazing, amazing singers and, you know, groups that came out of there. But yeah. And that, that worked because they stuck to what they were doing. Well, right. Exactly. And it seems like they, they just found a fun niche and they just stuck with it and they didn't try to go too far more out of the bounds of what it was. And I mean, especially for that one, obviously it was more uh, children centric as well. So there is. But it wasn't it was actually geared towards whoever. It was just like a family friendly thing because it had to hit all age groups. And the only reason they did Motown is because the original was. I heard it through the grapevine, right? Which is for California Rays, and I get it. Yeah, I heard it through the grapevine.
But then they were just like, fine, that's what they do. They that isn't the that isn't their one off. Like they didn't turn them into like a rock band, or they didn't turn them into like a country band. They're Got like, it. they do Motown music, and Motown is, you know, more family friendly now than it was when you know it was being written. Um, but like it was acceptable, and it was like you know our parents' generation of music, so. Yeah. And was there anything else with the ads that I can't think of anything else? No, it was just like a 15 second claymation. They would sing. I heard it through the grapevine and then it'd be like California raisins. Oh yeah. No. Is there any other, anything else that were ads that was turned into a movie or TV? Yeah. So the other one that I found interesting was space jam was based on a Nike promo. Oh, how about that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Cause it was, but then the thing I kind of put it, an asterisk by this in the notes that I passed over because it's not like the Looney Tunes are already a entity and you already know who the Looney Tunes are. So having Jordan with Bugs Bunny just becomes a Looney Tune sort of thing. It was interesting at least and worth a mention. You sent over this. Listen, I, I think one of the big things is especially recently, I think is toys and games that have gotten turned into properties. Yeah, the thing I found really interesting was just in the 80s was the heyday of making a toy or making a cartoon just to sell a toy. Yeah. Like in the big one, like was, you know, the Transformers, the G.I. Joes, the Barbies. Uh, I had a whole Care Bears. Care Bears, He-Man, Cabbage Patch Kids, Bratz. Um, Polly Pocket, Trolls, Hot Wheels, Raggedy Ann and Andy. Like, these were all, all these shows were made just to sell the toy. So the toy already existed and they needed to sell it. See, that was always funny growing up. I always, what existed first, the toy or the TV show? And you never really knew growing up until like now you can go back and find out that this was like all a big strategy. It was all kind of a synergy between. Yeah. And the one I know the best is uh, the Transformers. Cause at one point I was working on a documentary um, or I was editing a documentary on them. And the story with them was that essentially it was like a toy fair in New York and it was a Tokyo based company. And they had them as they were, transforming robots that had people drive them so they were almost like mechs right and then when they were bought by hasbro or mattel man i should know Uh, that i should have known that down hasbro okay so when they were bought by hasbro they were like okay we don't want little people driving them we we just want these autonomous things so then they were hiring people to essentially write character bios for these characters and then they were putting them into a story for whatever oh it was like the background of the of the toy right so then it you know they launched the cartoon with in conjunction with the toy so as soon as the cartoon's out you can get the toy at your store hey man i gotta say that's a that is brilliant marketing i guess if anything if you want to call it or whatever the the whole conceptual idea of it is great though because I remember being whole hog into both the TV show and having all of the transformer toys. Yeah. Especially when sir Optimus prime Optimus prime. I mean, that was the one to have. I mean, that was just like the, the top notch. I remember loving them. Um, 
so much as a kid. And that was just like, you know, Peter Cullen's voice coming out of Optimus Prime was just like the thing. But I that actually, you know, brings, you know, just to talk on another challenge of like doing stuff like this. When you create a character like that from scratch and you just have it the way that it looks, you really do need the big why. Like, what are these things doing? Like, what's the big goal to like... And it's interesting when you look at that because it's all the zeitgeist of the time. You know what I mean? Like, the Transformers needs all spark, you know, which is very much reminiscent of the oil crisis of 1977, 78. You also have the planet being destroyed, which very much riffs off the whole Superman thing that was huge at the beginning of the 80s with the movies that were coming out. And then, you know, you're, it's just, it feels like this such amalgamation of like what was going on at the time. And then you have, you know, you're essentially like a Captain America like character as your main you know, hero. See, but what's funny about those shows, and this is part of what I thought when they announced they were going to make a movie of Transformers. I, growing up, I, I never thought about it that way of like, oh, what is like the ultimate goal of the Transformers? Like, what are they doing? It's just, they were just one-off episodes to me that they were fighting a bad guy, you know, whatever battle they're having in that episode. And that was it. Like, it was never this big serialized effort that was going on. It was just a lot of, one-off episodes that they just go out and do things. At least that's what I remember as a kid. And then once they're going to make a full featured movie out of it, I'm like, that's great. That sounds super cool. I'm really interested in seeing what this all looks like and what the story is going to be. But I question is like, what are they going to do? Like, what is the story that you're going to tell about these space cars? Like what, what is like the, the overall arching theme and like the connective tissue that is going to make me care about these things. Uh, so I always found that interesting. And, it seems one of the big ways they try to get themselves out of this box uh, for many of these crossovers is to somehow incorporate humans into the storyline with these things. Yeah. Rather than having them as necessarily the protagonists themselves, they find human protagonists to connect to, at least that's the intention, and then they just have them kind of be part of the world. It's really it's kind of a strange thing, but that's the basic blueprint it seems like they came up with for a lot of these types of uh, crossovers. And I think for some of the non-human ones, especially stuff like, you know, Transformers, you do need human interaction because you need to, like, really tie the kid to part of what's happening. You know, because when you have stuff like He-Man, they're already human-looking, so you're pretty, you know, good. But, like, a notable exception is, like, My Little Pony doesn't have humans in it at all. Or, you know, but Care Bears do. Care Bears are running around with people and helping people out. Right. So it, it does seem like a 50-50. But, I mean, you always do need somebody that needs to be like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this thing, yeah. Optimus Prime? It's like, because we need the all spark Or whatever, you know, they would... Whatever um, the MacGuffin is of do. the day. <laughs> But the one that actually sticks out to me as being the best version of this is Lego. Like, Lego as a toy, taking that into, like, the Lego, you know, video games, and then the Lego, like, movie, and then the Lego, like, Ninjago, and all the the different riffs on uh, the Marvel and, you know, Batman and all that stuff. I they're the ones that took a lot of the 
childlike wonder and kind of like and sort of like tongue-in-cheekness and really ran with it but and that goes back to the earnestness though you spoke about with like ted lasso that that continued the ethos of it and that same thing it's like legos like how do you bottle up what legos mean to somebody and a kid building with that that like joy of creativity happening but they don't understand it they just they they feel the joy but they don't they get, they're not articulating that joy like how do you yeah. bring that into a bunch of plastic toys that actually makes it an interesting movie like you could have just did a story with the legos but the way they did it and incorporated like you said the tongue in cheek and kind of same hanging a lantern on some of the aspects of it or aspects of pop culture and, and wove that all into it but with a deft hand, I mean, I, I don't think that's an easy thing to do. That's not like that. That to me no, is one of those proof points that there is no blueprint. It's it's finding an idea that's interesting and going with it. But then, it, like we said before, having the ability to execute on it as well. So th the thing with the like Lego to me is there's there's a thousand things you can point to that they did right. But again, there's a thousand things that they did right in order for it to actually hit the mark that it did. So that's one of those times where there, there's really, to me, no breaking it down necessarily that you can replicate what they did. I, I think that is something truly special what they did and they found. Oh, I, I definitely think there is. But I think that is a way that you can look at that and be like, they made the building of things central to who these these characters were. Okay. But then, but they made it in almost like a Matrix-like framework. You know what I mean? Right. Like, to be like, you're the chosen one that's able to create this from nothing. You know, this world yeah. is all built of Legos. And you can create from nothing. I, that to me was like using that framework was really good. And it does, again, point straight to the ethos of being like Legos are for creating and going off book, you know, and making the weird thing out of the 15 sets that you've lost most of the pieces of. Like some of it is following instructions and some of it is just going off book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I for my toddler, we got the Duplo sets and we keep getting yeah. more. We have a bucket full of them, but we put them together when I first take them out of the package and then they get taken apart and the directions go in a bin and we never make that what was intended to begin with. And then we just build whatever is in our fan, whatever kind of strikes us at the moment when we decide to play with Legos. But I guess that's, I guess the part two take away from it, like you're saying, you, you're finding the essence of what makes that that product that thing connect with people and then yeah. you're fine but then you're also taking that a step further and finding a way once you find what that ethos is is to make a whole story and narrative out of it which is right. where and the the very special magic happens yeah and that would be like that's where i would say you get to the place that you're talking about which would be very hard to replicate because you are talking about a very specific sense of humor and a very you know distinct voice well then what was your take then on transformers did it hit the ethos or did they just completely do something off book and for other reasons it became successful not that it's necessarily uh i think good. with transformers the cartoon they definitely hit like a ethos of this like but when you talk about the movies i think the movies miss a lot of the mark on yeah what it is one of the things is 
the style of the way the robots looked wasn't great. It was very muddled. And I understand the thought process because if you're really trying to break down, like, how would something look that could shape into any thing it wanted to, there would be a million tiny moving pieces, not large, big block things like you would be used to. Right. Problem is, you kind of lose the personification of it. It kind of reminds me of um, now Sonic the Hedgehog, which that movie is surprisingly good. I, I've heard that it's actually not bad if you got... Well, and that's what they... Since they redid the the Sonic, the CG on the Sonic. Yeah. When they originally did it, they didn't make it look like the video game. They made it look more like a personified hedgehog. And people were like, no, we don't want that. We want to see Sonic. We don't want to know what Sonic would be like if he was a real running around hedgehog. We want him to look like Sonic so that he can do Sonic things. And I think that's the thing that you have to really grapple with is like you can't. And I think that kind of constrains you a little bit when doing stuff like this. You can't be too innovative about different things. You have to keep it for the stuff that you do have. You got to keep it pretty close. But that actually leads us into a whole other realm of these things, which are games that have been turned into these properties. And then I had, you know, stuff down to like Angry Birds, Dungeons and Dragons, Pac-Man, you know, and then even just the video games, stuff like Doom and Resident Evil, but they already have a storyline, so they're kind of like, meh. Yeah, video games are play that edge case of narrative form along with freeform kind of imagination. So, but I agree, but the board games I find fascinating as well. I mean, I know you had on the list too, was like Battleship was another one. That's like, and again, talk about, I mean, ideas when you hear that they're going to, all right, we're, they're doing this thing and they're going to make it into a movie. You're just like, okay. Like you get intrigued because you want to know, well, okay, this is an untraditional property. You're like, there, and there's no real backstory. The thing, at least like Transformers, there is a backstory still. You know what I mean? Like like you even were saying, the way they kind of had this symbiotic relationship between the toys and the, the TV show is like it started off just creating backstories for these toys. That's how you kind of sold toys to kids back then. Like they had to have like action figures, had stories. But then they're like, well, let's extrapolate this out and make a show. So it all kind of happened at the same time where Battleship is just a board game. Like, And there's not even like player like characters within it it's just you guess yeah. where somebody else is and then you bomb it and it's like when you're playing it sure you get this feeling that you're kind of in this in the boat like doing these maneuvers and you know playing war games kind of thing but uh, what do you do they went way <laughs> way off the mark like i just said war games do war games remake war games the movie in a way that's that factors in this whole battleship idea of what the essence of battleship is again that is just off the cuff like you can you really have to narrow down more but that's just even me just spitballing here would have been a better movie than what the battleship that they made well that's one that i just was like you're putting a name on something just to put a name on it like there probably exists in the world a way to do the battle battleship the board game in a in a good way i don't know what that would be like off the top of my head because the only way you would think to do that is you have to bring in the characteristic of you can't see the enemy that you're fighting and you're trying to guess where they are which is like 
you know, they, and that's why they brought in the aliens and whatever and all that stuff. But, like, I think the other thing that kind of destroys the whole ethos of the game is that when you're playing Battleship, you don't think about the fact that if this was real life, those would be, you know, hundreds of men and women who would be dying on those ships that you're sinking. Good point. <laughs> so when you bring that war like front and center to what you're doing, you're like, oh, like that isn't fun. Right. So that's probably part of where they decide, well, we got to make it some inanimate or non-soul living kind of creature that we can blow up indiscriminately. Right. But it's still just kind of like it, it twists it in a way that you're like, I, I don't know what we're doing here. Um, again, I don't know how you would make battleship, the movie and maybe that that was the best version of it and maybe that's I, I could right now think of like doing something like i just said war games with matthew broderick and like somehow some kid is able to ta- he taps in and hacks into some sort of you know setcon command network or something and then he sets off something but then he has some sort of skill and then later on the commanders and generals and navy people have to bring actually bring him in because he's the only one who can actually help them out beat whatever the said bad guy is. And, but then you see him in front of like that see-through glass stuff that has like the radar on it, but it's see-through, but then he's pointing out coordinates that they should do this or that. And even though they don't know what's going on, like just right there is like, I think a a better idea. And it's definitely more compelling. You can make a good movie that way. You can, even though things are happening in like a room on a board, you can make that compelling. If you look at games, uh, movies like, um, the the I think it was uh, the Patriot Games I think was the one or maybe it was Clear and Present Danger where Harrison Ford is on a computer trying to download files or something and then the guy's files he's hacking into or something is also then deleting them at the same time and he's trying to get them yeah but it's this back and forth I don't know I'm just saying uh, passive things can actually be interesting if you know how to execute it properly and so anyway that's my yeah. spitball of that so. We can go on. I, it's not to bash too much on it. I mean, look, these movies are of their time. I mean, Battleship is a big action movie in the vein of Transformers. Like, let's be real. I mean, the, even the alien robots machines look similar in that that For look sure. to Transformers. So, you know, it's of its time. It's the same thing you were saying. All these games and shows were of its time taking, you know, cues from other pop culture events. So, you know, it's just how these things roll. So it's fine. Sure. It's it's a easy action movie, but it, it, yeah. it didn't quite hit the mark, though, of what we're talking about, how when you're trying to adapt a, a, an unconventional property. Yeah, the one that I think really does hit it out of the park when you come to board games is Clue. Like, the movie Clue is such, like, a great encapsulation of the board game because it is kind of silly that you're following this murder mystery. The three endings that they did, for anyone who doesn't know, when they first released the movie, theaters would get cut A, cut B, or cut C, and they all had three different, they had, each A, B, and C had a different ending. So if you watch the movie, like you've seen it on video, the ending goes, it could have happened this way, or it could have happened this way, or it could have, or, but it did happen this way. And that's how you watch it. When you were in the theater, that wouldn't have been there. It just would have gone right to an ending. Oh, and you really? could have I talked. Didn't know that. 
Yeah, so you could have talked to a friend who had seen it, and they'd be like, that wasn't the ending I saw. And that to I me, I love that. That is amazing. I did not know that was the case. I've only seen it on video, so I only saw the successive uh, ABC plot lines that they play out. I did not know that. That is super awesome. Yeah, their thought was that people would go see the movie three times. I'm sure to see all the endings. It did not turn out that way. People were very confused. <laughs> And uh, I believe it was John Landis who had done the story and had directed it, um, who had the idea to do the three endings. I, that to me is such a fun like way to, to have the tribute to the game in that it really was such a random game that could have ended any way. Like you don't know who the murderer is or who what the murder weapon is or or where or it was even, done. Yeah. And I think that was the thing that was like to to take that and like because obviously you would know how somebody got killed. You're like, well, we have to take that part out, but we can like do this and that and the other thing and like figure it all out. And I I thought that was amazing. And then of course it got this cult following once it you know got to like cable and yeah. like when it was on VHS and then people like rented it and they were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing and the cast is amazing. It's so. It's funny and so quick-witted, and I, I, it is by far one of my favorite movies. I, to me, the shining example of how you can take a non-traditional property and turn it into a compelling movie in its own right. I, I mean, I totally agree because I remember when I first saw Clue. I think it was kind of randomly, probably because I either saw it on cable or I saw it in the video store and rented it. I can't remember, but once I finally watched it, I was like, "Oh!" I first didn't even realize it was a movie, and I was like how is this a movie? And it just hit all the right marks. I mean, that kind of movie is like my bread and butter of like, I'll watch that a thousand times, a, a whodunit murder mystery. But, you know, even watching whodunit murder mysteries now that it's a hard one to do, I think, but that one nails it. And also the fact that it's doing it from an already property that you know and and have an expectation for and finding a way to make it special and hit that ethos that we keep talking about. Like you just said, it, it, it's what sets it apart. And the three endings though, is the most fun of it all. I mean, it, it, it really just ties it all together so well because they could have chose any, any, and you're like, okay, sure, whatever. But the fact that they did the three endings is what actually I think keeps it really, really close to its source material though, because you said that is the thing is that, you literally choose three cards at random. You shuffle a deck. You put them in the in the one the the envelope, and then you have to go through the detective game. But also doing a yeah. detective game, you know, uh, the the murder mystery film, like having to find clever ways though to give hints and try to allow people to think that they're following along. But yeah, and I thought they actually, you know, when they went into tropes, they played them the right way like the thing whole thing happens on a dark and stormy night which is like the biggest like you know trope you know in murder mysteries but they do it really well like they you know and the singing telegram is still my favorite part of the whole thing but if you just take a second to think about how much work it took to write three distinct endings that like the rest of your like, I mean, I'm, I'm let's say it's like a hundred and 
10 minutes is is what the you know movie is or maybe even it's like a 90 minute movie that the other you know 80 minutes of your movie can line up and end in three different ways seamlessly yeah to me is is just a a real 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 impressive feat and i think it gets overlooked because it is done so almost effortlessly and then you forget that that was actually just would have rolled as an ending and people would have seen it and not like played as a joke as it kind of is done in the in the vhs or when it's like compiled on a movie yeah so i i think that clue is kind of the near pinnacle of adaptations of the untraditional untraditional media or whatever you want to call it what are we uh yeah, I th- yeah, I think non-traditional media, inter- non-traditional inspiration. I, I've wrote un- untraditional, and that sounds bad. I think it's non-traditional. Non-traditional. Yeah, I think Clue is probably the near pinnacle of this ad- adaptation of non-traditional pre-existing property, I think is the best way to uh, say it. So, Yeah, and then I'll just, we should just like bang through a couple of the other, because I just found a couple of really interesting origins that I didn't realize. Okay. Mars Attacks, I didn't realize was based on Topps trading cards. Nope, didn't know that. Yeah, um, I'll do a quick, you know, synopsis from Wikipedia. Mars Attacks is a science fiction themed trading card series released in 1962 by Topps. The Topps features artwork by science fiction artists Wally Wood and Norman Sanders. The cards form a story arc uh, which tell of an invasion of Earth by cruel, hideous Martians under the command of a corrupt Martian government. And I was like, that is wild. Like, I get that that has more of a narrative structure to it. But just basing them on cards is just so neat to me. Um, and then you have stuff that are based on cars, uh, like Knight Rider and Herbie. But then you have Pirates of the Caribbean, which is based on the Disney theme park ride. Yeah, I know a lot. That, that gets talked about a lot, too, because of usually it's the other way around where something's a movie and I'll be turned into a ride. But this was the rare instance where they already had a ride and they somehow decided to make a movie, which is weird to me when I heard about all that. Cause it was like, Oh, this isn't a movie already. Like they didn't have some Disney movie from right? like the 1960s or seventies called pirates of the Caribbean. And then, then they made the ride. And then uh, that's what I always thought. And then, you know, I, I find out later that no, this is only a ride created. And they somehow that was what they chose to make a movie, which again, talk about an, uh, something that, I think that's an example of one that almost even exceeded what the ride was because the ride I think was just yes. a ride. Like it wasn't this must see destination part of going to Disney world. Like, Oh you got to ride pirates of the Caribbean. It's like this amazing new ride that they did. It was just part of like an old ride that's been there for a long time. I know it's a slow, lazy river type ride with animatronics. It's kind of neat. It's got a fun, like you're in Tartuga, like whatever, it's got but a catch it's to not- it. It's not anything that's like super. It doesn't inspire inspiration. Like, wow, I wonder what this world would really be like. You're just like, oh, okay, we're in like some pirate themed world. Okay, cool. And these things are talking to me as I pass by on my little lazy log. But yeah, then the movie. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, again, a thousand things go into it, but they they really just extrapolated out a story, which I guess maybe in a sense they had a blank canvas, so there was a little less restrictions and mold they had to fit into outside of it just having 
because uh, I don't even think Captain Jack Sparrow is even an, was originally a character on the no. original ride. They added him in now is now on the ride because of the success of the film series. So, oh yeah, the, he is the face of the film series. Right, but he was not even a character on the ride prior to that, so they have actually retroactively added him to it because obviously everybody expects Captain Jack Sparrow now when you say Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, you have to, yeah, so, yeah. So that's a that's a cool one. I I think that they they really did well. Yeah, and then we have uh, I don't know if you remember this one from Justin to Kelly, which is based on the American Idol television show. <laughs> That, that competition. Not, I remember that. I, I know what you're talking about. That is not something that was on my mind to think of connecting the dots of like, oh, yeah, what's an adapted oh, non-traditional property? <laughs> oh, yeah. American Idol. They made a movie out of American Idol. Didn't I've done now. Gosh, it was so crazy. That was a that was a bad movie. Um, I haven't seen either of these, but I just found it interesting. There's two, two movies, La Bamba or sorry, Lombada and then another like Lombada, the sequel. They're apparently, so in the 80s, I remember this being this like sort of a dance craze, this Brazilian dance called the Lombada. And uh, somebody decided to make a whole movie about this dance. This like, because, you know, dance movies were big in the 80s. This was like the forbidden dance. Oh, yeah. And they they did that. And then one that another one I found interesting was Mac and Me was done by McDonald's because of the success of E.T. So McDonald's is like, we want an alien and we want him to eat McDonald's. So he's Mac, McDonald's, Mac and me. So, yeah. I I did not know that. So, you know, that leads me into... Uh, so so that that leads me into the the McDonald's thing is interesting because you also proposed now we're, we're gonna move into we're gonna play a little game here All right. um and what should be adapted into the movie or what would you like to be see adapted into the movie um when I was thinking about this and you know you kind of came up with another aspect of the another game too called how would you adapt so maybe we could throw this into that. Why I've never seen a McDonald character movie or TV show like they're in little cartoon snippets I've seen from time to time. But there's not like a how is there not a McDonald Ronald McDonald movie? I think there's a Ronald McDonald cartoon. I feel like it's their like maybe DVD series that you get in a Happy Meal maybe. But but how think about them not making a TV series or a movie about Ronald McDonald because there's statistics out there that Ronald McDonald is, is more well known by kids than like Santa Claus or something like that. Like that's how. Oh, Jesus. So in 1998, they did a six episode series called the wacky adventures of Ronald McDonald. And you're going to have to link it in the show notes um, because this is not what you would think Ronald McDonald would look like. See, this is going to be an example. I can tell from the jump why a, why this was only six episodes they made Ronald McDonald, if anybody's familiar with Rugrats, yeah, um, that animation, it very much looks like they're, they're playing in the Rugrat-ish animation style with Ronald McDonald. Adventures of The Wacky Adventures okay. of Ronald McDonald. Hit. It's a 1998 comedy. Oh, man. All right, YouTube. Oh yeah, I'm seeing yeah. the character. Ooh, 
<laughs> well, wait a minute. I'm what I'm watching right now is live action. Oh wait, here's some of the cartoon. Oh, okay. interesting. Okay, so there's some live action prelude to what I was watching, which was creepy in and of itself. So it was made by Mark and Bob um, Mothersbra, who were from Devo and composed the music for Rugrats. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, there's a reason it looks like Rugrats, and it's because these guys were were working with the team that did uh, Rugrats, and then Ah Real Monsters, The Wild Thornberries. Okay. All right, all right. Now, um, I don't think I've ever Rocket seen it. But, so okay. th- there's a reason right, well, it does. I stand corrected. We do have uh, like Ronald that. McDonald show now. The, in a format similar to both the Super, Super Mario Brothers show and Back to the Future, the animated series, each episode starts and ends with a live-action segment. 40 minutes. They're 40-minute episodes. Uh, the live-action segment is creepy, man. Like, Ronald McDonald in real life is is he gives me to willies okay let's get it back into this so what should be or what would you like to see adapted okay so this is the first one i got two and i'll go through them very quickly the first one is a little cheating because we did kind of skip over this there song there's a lot of songs that have been adapted into movies you know the gambler was one of them and then there was um oh no i'm blanking on it that's why i have a link so there's the gambler. Alice's restaurant was based on a song. The Chattanooga Choo Choo, uh, Detroit Rock City. These are all based on songs. Frosty the Snowman was based on a song. So uh, the gambler, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in doing the song, I actually thought that this would be a fun song that should be turned into a movie. And it would be, it was a good day by Ice Cube. And what I would do is I would have it directed by F. Gary Gray. And this is because not only he did he direct Friday, but he also directed The Negotiator. So I think he has the ability to do intense, but also funny. You know, he's a very versatile director. He also did The Fate of the Furious, which is an awesome uh, Fast and Furious movie. And I always choose a director who has done a Fast and Furious movie over any other if I was producing stuff. Anyway, so it would star Michael B. Jordan and it would be it would be the song of Michael B. Jordan going throughout his days in 1993 Compton, California. But it would have this intense feeling like something bad was going to happen the whole time. So as Michael B. Jordan is going throughout his day and he's like, you know, you know, the Lakers are being the supersonics and all the things that happen in the song, you'd get the, you know, the, it looks like the, the cops are going to pull them over, but, you know, they just drive on by. It would be all these, like, really intense moments of, like, this is it. This is where things are going to go really wrong. And then they don't. And then the end of the movie would be, obviously, him returning home and realizing, like, having that moment sitting on his, like, front porch or maybe like laying down in his bed like realizing that this was actually a really good day and it would be much in the same vein as like um like in jarhead how they go through the whole movie and like jake gyllenhaal never fires his gun and like you're waiting for that moment you're waiting for that battle to happen and it just never does or you know the sofia coppola movie lost in translation you're waiting for that the affair to happen and it never does. And when it doesn't, that relief of that tension, I think would actually make a really compelling movie. But 
to stick more to our actual game, um, I think Rubik's Cube, the movie. This, this is the one. This is the one I want you to talk about because I saw you you put this on the list and the other one is good. And I can completely picture that. And I even get the sense of like what you're going for. But this one, I was like, this is perfect. I love everything about this. This is amazing and fantastic. And I would love to see this movie. <laughs> this was so great. I think I think you're just uh, okay. So this would be this would be a my idea for Rubik's Cube the movie. First of all, it'd be directed by Christopher Nolan. So written directed by Christopher Nolan, um, in the Inception and Tenant vibe. It'd star Bruce Willis, and it would be there's a large soci- secret society of puzzle solvers, um, and then it would be something with people being murdered or they disappear, and it's all wrapped around the mystery of like trying to solve this Rubik's cube. And they would be very much in the, like I said, in the vein of inception or tenant or the game, the Michael Douglas, uh, Sean Penn movie that, you know, the David Fincher, like it would be like that where it's like something about putting the, the thing together the right way, unlock something. But every time you move it, something would happen something would change in the world something would would shift and that would be changing his fate so he knows he needs to solve it to put everything back but he doesn't know but he has to deal with every time he turns it that it's going to change something so he has to figure it out and i feel like so there's like a butterfly effect from each move right so i feel like christopher nolan would be the right type of person to be able to like do that weird psychological oh, a nice, like uh, mumbo jumbo where it's like there. yeah oh yeah you could you get real in the weeds with that one too where it'll take you like 15 times to watch the movie to even start to grasp what he's trying to go for right and how each of the moves shifted things lottery or whatever but anyway i think rubik's cube would rubik's cube the movie um would definitely i give two thumbs up to that idea i i want to see that that is fantastic oh Keep that in your hip pocket, man. Anytime you're in a room and you're pitching something and they say, all right, well, you got anything else? I, I would bring that one out. Bring that one out, yeah. To, to be like, hey, if Christopher Nolan, if I'm standing with Christopher Nolan, I'll be like, yo, you ever think of writing this movie? I think it's great. And you say you have Bruce Willis starring in it. I, I Yeah, that I'm sold. Yeah, I, I mean, and like, I need the 12 monkeys, Bruce Willis. The guy who's just, who's, trying to be tough but he's very yeah. confused i i man when i saw that like, i was like this guy. is i i love everything about this i would go see that movie in a heartbeat i and i think the pedigree you're putting behind it with christopher nolan having bruce willis in it he would be the the ultimate person who's confused yet yeah he, he gets confused but is still able to somehow keep it together and try to you know figure out what's going on it's good that's good yeah he always has a determination he's gonna make a move he's gonna make a choice he's not going to be the guy that's going to give up, but he does do that. Like confused. Like, I don't know, man, I'm just going to jump and something will catch me because I got to do it. I can't just sit here. Very good. Very good. All right. So, um, I was trying to think like, what, what's like a property. It took me a little bit because I was like property or brands like that could be something. Uh, anyway, I went the board game route, uh, as well. And I chose monopoly. Oh, that would be a good one. 
So I see this as being directed by really kind of co-directed by Adam McKay of uh, the big short vice and succession fame and David O. Russell, who did in the American hustle vibe. Um, so this basically would be like a, a, an offbeat dramedy about high stakes real estate market of Atlantic city where several up and comers, uh, along with a few, yeah, okay. uh, veteran that. sharks, uh, try to own the boardwalk of AC by any means necessary of cutting deals, you know, leveraging themselves, finding shady ways to come up with the capital, uh, all while, you know, living the high life in the fast lane, or at least showing the impression that they do to be in this high stakes world of, uh, Atlantic city real estate. Uh, and you know, while they're living in the fast lane, they're all overextended and where some people go to directly to jail while others lose everything. And there's really only one that comes out on top in the end. Uh, I see it as a big like ensemble cast with like Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell and Emma Stone and Anthony Mackie and Christian Bale and Jessica Chastain and Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper and Amy Adams. So uh, yeah, they, they all kind of are trying to find their way to make their mark and own as much property as possible. And there's always a lot of wheeling and dealing and it's a lot of high stakes pressure. So it's kind of forming like a mashup of like, you know, the big short with American hustle and, um, and yeah, and, and just bringing all those eccentric personalities there. So there's a lot of that, that black humor going on, that dark humor going on. I love that. That would be a lot of fun, you know? Cause that's what I was trying to think. I was like, all right, Monopoly, how would you do that? And then I thought, okay, the big short, like I enjoyed how his structure and his, his wit in that movie showed through for Adam McKay and, but like with the characters, but then, you know, the actors, you know, take it home. Like Ryan Gosling is, uh, in, is just great. And I can't remember the other guy who's in, um, the big short, who's in, also in succession. The, he's really great in it as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, uh, all right, Tony, in, in the uh, vein of Tony, I will look this up because you can't ever let a talent go uncredited on our podcast. I know I, I, I'm doing it. The, oh, Jeremy Strong. Side note, I really like how IMDb changed their layout for the desktop version. Oh, wow. What's this IMDb thing you're talking about? Oh yeah, they they actually did a really nice job to just be like, goes right down and has the cast, and then it goes into the like, crew right under it. Like this is the way they should have done it, and they have like essentially the top like fifteen twenty people who are in it. Anyway, those just side note, good good on you. You know, my spotlight is IMDb. Check it out. No, <laughs> this is my property that I think they should adapt into a movie and I think they could have a lot of fun with it. No, I think it would be I think it would be good. I think Adam McKay is a really good choice because it is, you know, like the whole game was designed to tell people how, you know, to teach kids how unchecked capitalism destroys everything. Um yes, that is that is what I was trying to go for there as far as what my allegory should be about. I, I wasn't quite being I wasn't able to find the words for it. You just kind of summed it up perfectly for me. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, the idea that you would have, because all of the players would have to really want the other people, not just to have them, like, not get the deal. They would want them to go bankrupt. And that, to me, would, like, be this real 
like heavy air that would like hang on like the comedy, which I think would make the comedy moments really funny. But like the heavy air of being like, all right, man, you got the hotel deal. Let's go into the next thing. It's like, no, I got to make sure I'm charging this guy rent. So he loses everything. And it's like, you don't have to do that. It's like, yes, it's not enough for me to win. They have to leave Atlantic City. <laughs> well, that's what you can have then, like all this Machiavellian uh, work going on where you're teaming up this one person so that you can screw over the other one. But then you're teaming up with somebody else to screw with that person who you're teaming up with to screw up the first person and all this like different interaction happening and all these, this jockeying for position and trying to swindle people. So I, I just think that you could really lean into all the wheeling and dealing and uh, yeah, capitalism at all costs and what, what toll that takes on everybody. Yeah. What's that? That feels like one that should have been adapted by now. I like, I think that's a really good idea. I'm maybe it's just that you're like, it feels like it should have been. I don't know if Parker brothers would necessarily want that version of adaptation, but I think that would be an interesting take on it all and would actually get people interested in watching the movie and then going to play the game. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't say anything. I think also part of the comedy you could lean into the fact that like Atlantic city boardwalk is like the hot place to get all this like high end property would be also, I think some of the comedy you could lean into. (laughs) Oh yeah. Or just like starting at Baltic moving up. There's like one entry in in IMDb, and I don't think it's real. It has Kevin. It has that it would star Kevin Hart, and I. This feels like, I, you know, sometimes they just like throw things on there that feel more rumored than real. Yeah, like movie center on a boy from the games, modest Baltic Avenue on a quest to make a fortune. Yeah, and then it just has rumored Kevin Hart. I don't. I don't think this is a real thing. Rumored. Yeah, I haven't seen anything about this yet. Uh, yeah, you should. I mean, I that that's a good one. I like that one. Is there a movie Rubik's Cube? No, I'm not, now I'm like looking it up. No, Logic solves Rubik's Cube while eating spicy wings. There you go. It was an episode of a television show. Now we're going to. I know. Now we're going to be like, oh, we got to come up with new ideas. All right. Well, yes. So that is the property I think they should adapt into a movie. And I would love to see that ensemble all come together. I love it whenever Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, and Emma Stone share the screen together. Throw in Christian Bale and Jennifer Lawrence with that. And I think you got a home run. I think we should wrap this up. I think that was a good way to end it. Uh, A fun way to end it. I always love coming up with some story ideas for the show itself. Uh, maybe one day they'll become an actual film or TV show. So we will see. Yeah. All right, Tony, uh, do you have anything that you want to spotlight? Um, besides IMDb's new layout, um, actually I would spotlight, there's a wonderful, wonderful novel that I just finished reading called Shantaram, um, which centers around a a guy who goes by the name Lin Baba um, in uh, India. And he is, he's a escape convict from Australia and he's trying to make his way in the world in uh, Bombay, Mumbai. And uh, it is quite the epic tale. Um, It's based kind of on the life of the 
of the author, Gregory Roberts, um, he says that the there's people in there that are fictionalized, but that this roughly was, you know, his experience in uh, Bombay from 1981 to 1987. In the epilogue of the book and in the acknowledgments, he does talk about writing the first draft of the book while in prison. Um, so I'm sure whatever happened, you know, with the stuff that he was doing in Bombay, it would be very, it would not be hard to believe that he would end up in prison again, even if he had to, like, finish out his sentence in Australia. So it's it's a very good book. Um, you know, it's uneven at times, so sometimes it's, like, very, like, on-the-nose writing, and then sometimes it's, like, really beautiful. Um, the characters are really great. Um, the story is epic and sweeping and um i mean it's it's almost a thousand page novel but it's really worth it if you don't want to read it i learned that it's actually been option is in development with charlie hunnam to star as lynn um and then a bunch of you know other people it's gonna be i believe it's gonna be on showtime or hbo but it will be coming as a series and it's it as a series i can only imagine that it would be amazing um but as a novel it was just phenomenal it's it's easily uh one of the top 10 that i've read in the last 10 years it's very very good all right and what's the name of that again it's shantaram uh by gregory david roberts all right, and we'll link to that in the show notes. All right, well, that's high praise. Uh, top 10 in the past 10, that's, that's high praise. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can fit in a 1,000-page novel. That's a, that's a tall order, but maybe they, maybe they have an audio book of it. Uh, they do, they do. And the um, uh, the narrator for the audio book is good, uh, so you can do that as well. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, we'll put that in the show notes for to check out. Uh, that's a good one. So uh, I will highlight spot uh, tonight. I will spotlight. I am right now going through a project of uh, printing out pictures to frame on our walls. Uh, some family pictures. So we've gone through a whole process, and you know these kind of projects. I get very detail oriented about as does my wife of picking the right photo. And then once you can find a photo or a few, then you go through and try to color correct them to certain kind of looks and all that. And then we're going through finding uh, where to get these printed up properly because these are going to be like hanging up or have them framed and all that. So going to Shutterfly is not going to cut it. So um, I'm going to spotlight two uh, photo printing websites that I think are really great if you're looking into this kind of project. Uh, one is called Pro DPI, and I found this through uh, reading this photographer's blog that he uses a lot. He's a professional photographer, and we did print up a, uh, a landscape shot that we took while we honeymooned in Morea, uh, and it just turned out absolutely fantastic because it was like uh, dusk setting time, so everything was like a happy hour, magic hour, purple, pink sky kind of thing, reflections off the water, all that kind of stuff, and we tried to print it up from a couple other places and it all didn't look good. It was a lot of banding and all that. So 
this place printed up beautifully. So Pro DPI, if you're looking for really sharp, clear pictures, is a fantastic site. And the other one that we're looking into is called Artifact Uprising that prints out a lot of on uh, very special paper stock and has a more vintage look to it. But they have a lot of different types of frames and prints and uh, different sizes, which uh, and, and you know picture holders. So they have a whole. Uh, catalog of things to to print up with uh but they have like really great quality and i like printing my pictures through them typically as well so those are two two places if you're looking into a big photo project and really want to have some really nice prints of whatever you have you know that that's one of my things i've been trying to do it's hard but uh you take so many pictures uh on your phone i really try to curate them as best i can and then i want to get i'm trying to get into a thing of printing more photos to have even if they live in boxes at least have more of that kind of ritual where occasionally you can look through pictures rather than on your phone or on your computer actually have them in your hand and physically touch them and shuffle through them and then you know every so often when you kind of go through them you kind of have that memory but then being printed up or already curated then more than just scrolling through a whole feed of your pictures even in a photo library on your computer it's just then a ton it's a ongoing kind of indefinite kind of project but uh for this specific one of printing up uh you know, framed pictures. Uh, those are the two sites we're looking at. So I figured uh, I might as well give them a shout out. So love it. That sounds great. I'll definitely use that. Uh, that's all I got for tonight, Tony. That's all I got too. It's such a great idea. That's it is something we don't think about much. Uh, the non traditional properties of adapting. Yeah. So uh, and a lot of different aspects going into it than when you're doing the more narrative forms of books or plays or uh, you know uh, magazine articles and stuff like that. All right, man. Well, then, uh, if there's nothing else, I'll catch you on the flip side and talk to you next yeah, time. Man. I will catch you next time. All right, later, man.